James chapter 3. And we're going to begin reading in verse 13. James asks a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by good conduct, that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. There was a story of four individuals on a small plane. It was one of those puddle jumpers going from island to island. And as they boarded the plane, the plane took off and began to make its way to the next, uh, next destination. When over the ocean, the plane began to experience a technical malfunction. And the pilot started to grow very concerned because he realized that there were four men and only three parachutes. There was him, there was a pastor, there was a famous businessman, and a Boy Scout. And as they were making their way, finally the pilot had no choice but to let them know of their dilemma. So the businessman, thinking that he was the most important person on the plane, grabbed one of the packs and said, listen, I I am too important to die here and now. So I'm taking one for myself. He grabbed a pack and jumped over, or out, I should say. And so the pastor looking around realized that there were only two parachutes left. So the pastor said to the Boy Scout and the pilot, you take them. I know where I'm going. I'm saved. I have an eternity uh, destined for me in Christ in heaven. And the Boy Scout said to the pastor, listen, there's no need to try to uh, uh, you know, spare us by sacrificing yourself. The businessman grabbed my backpack Sometimes when we think we're important and wise, we are actually not. The topic of wisdom isn't discussed enough in the Christian church in America. In fact, many people even have a very difficult time defining what wisdom is. Now, the most practical and general description of wisdom is simply the outplaying of the knowledge that we have in our everyday life. But in the first question that James poses to us, he adds another word, the word understanding. It's not only the application of the knowledge that we have, but how we apply that knowledge within the application. As one reminded us, he says, wisdom, proverb reminds us, leads to walk in the ways of a good man and keep the paths of righteousness. It is imperative that we understand that God calls us to walk in wisdom. The book of James has been called the book of wisdom of the New Testament, paralleling that with the book of Proverbs. Some believe 
that the book of James was even constructed in the same manner that the Proverbs were. And what do I mean by that? It's called a fragmental construction, meaning that as Solomon wrote to his children in the book of Proverbs, it wasn't him sitting down all at one time and compiling a letter at that moment, but over a period of time journaling various ideas and thoughts that he had, often you know, separating those ideas or fragmenting those ideas from the idea above, meaning that it isn't sequential and there isn't often a line of true thought through the book of Proverbs. Many believe that James did it the same way, that he journaled his ideas that he wanted to communicate to his recipients, those Jewish Christians abroad in the diaspora, as we learned in chapter 1, verse 1, who had become Christians and now were trying to live out their Christianity, trying to apply the concepts of the new covenant in Christ in comparison to the old covenant that they were accustomed to through Moses, and learning how to act as a Christian. One of the developments that occurred there in the Gentile world, as Judaism, which permeated the Gentile world, specifically after the Babylonian captivity. As you remember, after the Babylonian captivity, only a small remnant returned to Israel. Many of those individuals who were taken in the captivity stayed in the Gentile world and had families and generations after them, who, as Jews, grew up in the Gentile world confronted with Gentile ideologies. By the time Jesus came, the diaspora was quite large. The number of Jews that either continued from their ancestry from the Babylonian captivity or those displaced after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and as the persecution began to be leveled against Jews in Jerusalem and they began to spread throughout the Gentile world. As the Jews faced the Gentile world, they faced many challenges. And one, apart from their religious challenges, again, the Jews going into a pluralistic world, of course, pagan gods were everywhere. You just read Acts 17 and you see what uh, Paul contended with concerning the number of pagan gods that must be respected. But there was another issue. And it was a philosophical issue. Because as the Jews went into the known world, they were, cons- they were uh, contending with the very, phil- the very philosophical ideas that permeated through those societies. Paul talks about this greatly in the first three chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. These philosophical ideas are very important that we understand that they contended with, and they needed to rely on God's wisdom and not man's wisdom. Of course, the philosophers uh, that preceded them were known. Of course, we still study them today. Even though they were hundreds of years before this time, their ideas still formed the society and the thinking of the society at that time. And so James asks us the question here, as believers, from what source of wisdom are we drawing from? 
And he talks about origins, he talks about operations, and he talks about outcomes of the two. As one put it, and I love how they wrote it, knowledge alone enables us to take things apart, but wisdom enables us to put things together and relate God's truth within our daily lives. If we compare the wisdom of today and the wisdom of the Word, the world says, eat, drink, and be married, for tomorrow you die. But God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The world says, live to please yourself. God says, put God and others before yourself. The world makes as much money as possible, live large, and retire as soon as possible. But God says, store for yourself treasures in heaven. The world encourages us to live for today. God tells us to prepare for eternity. There's a vast difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God found in his word. So James asks in verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 13, excuse me, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So the question is posed. His recipients would read it. So who is truly wise and understanding among you? Who has taken their knowledge and applied it into their life? The knowledge that they have. And when it talks about this word understanding, it talks about skillfully applying the knowledge that we have. Skillfully understanding that there is uh, an element of experience that is needed to exercise wisdom, or I should say knowledge, through wisdom properly. For example, if you got up this morning and you said, oh, I'd like to take a nice warm shower before leaving for church, and we hope you did, the fellowship depends on it, wisdom would tell you that I go to the shower, I turn on the water. The skillful use of wisdom is I go to the shower, turn on the water, and then put my hand under the shower to make sure that the water is warm, correct? Because maybe the water, the warm water isn't instantaneous. It takes time before it actually comes forward. That's what this concept of understanding is. It's not only applying the knowledge that we have, but applying it skillfully. I heard an interesting story from a teacher and I'd like to use it. It's a test to find out how wise we actually are. And this test was given to some of the uh, top students at a university. And in this test, it had four questions, simple questions. The first question was so simple that they initially laughed, but then found out it was more complex than they thought. Or at least they thought it was more complex than they thought. The first question was this, how do you put a giraffe in a refrigerator? Well, you cut it up and put the slices in sideways and so forth. No, you'd be wrong. You simply open the refrigerator and put the giraffe in. The second question was a follow-up. 
How do you put a hippo in a refrigerator? Well, you open the door and you put the hippo in. That would be incorrect. You open the door, take out the giraffe, then put the hippo in, then close the door. The third question was a little bit more elaborate. The third question was that the Lion King called all of the animals to the valley for a meeting. Which animal did not join them? The hippo. He was still in the refrigerator. If you had to cross a river filled with crocodiles, how would you do it? You would swim because all the crocodiles were in the valley with the Lion King. 10% of the intellectuals got the answers right. They administered the same test to preschoolers and close to 70% got it right. Sometimes we're not as wise as we think we are. It was a simple question, and again, we made it more complex than it actually is. But James here alludes to a, a principle, a precedent that he set earlier on in his writing, that our Christian faith must be displayed in and through our actions. In fact, James goes as far to say that if they aren't displayed in and through our actions, do we really believe what we say we believe? Are we truly Christians? If our beliefs do not impact or change our actions, our attitudes towards others. And once again, now James is using that same concept to remind us that if we are truly wise, it will play out in our lives. And it will play out in the meekness, as he says here, very clearly, of wisdom. And then he begins to move us to consider the origins of the wisdom in which we have applied. Those origins led to operation. Those operations led to, of course, outcomes. When he discusses the word meekness, he is talking about a strength that is reigned, a strength that is controlled. Uh, most equate meekness with weakness. I think it's more because they rhyme. But that's not the case. Biblical meekness simply means one who can rein themselves in. One who can exercise self-control. And it's not only the bridling of the strength of the individual. Meekness can also be the bridling or the self-control of various elements of our existence. For example, as he talks and discusses about the tongue, which we looked at last week. But also, James is concerned about how we apply the wisdom that we have. And he's asking us and challenging us to truly consider where that wisdom originates. Is it the wisdom from above, or is it truly the wisdom from below? As he says here in verse 14, notice he says, but... If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. These characteristics, bitterness and envy and self-seeking, are not characteristics or the outplaying or the attitude results of the wisdom that comes from above. In fact, he'll identify the origins in just a minute. 
But there is something that I need to once again communicate to you. If all of you have a cell phone, could you just take it out for a minute? Take your cell phone out for a minute. Okay, mute it, first and foremost. Unless it is God, mute it. Your cell phone has two macro components. Those macro components are hardware and software. The identity of your phone is based upon the software because most of the hardware is similar in design and in nature. So there's two major components. Now we can get into more specifics, but two major components. The hardware of your cell phone is driven by the software that it contains. The software tells it how to behave. The software tells it how to operate. The software determines the outcome in which you desire or don't desire. And the identity of the phone is truly the identity of the software. Probably most of you either have an Android phone from Google, identified by Android software, or some of you that we need to pray for have an Apple phone that is identified by iOS. Either case, your phone is identified by the software in which it contains. Like yourself, you have two major components. You have the flesh and you have the spirit. The spirit of one who is apart from Christ will identify themselves through their actions as one who is apart from Christ. One who has the spirit residing in them, who has been born again, will identify themselves through their actions. It will be determined by their actions. As we have said, if you get arrested on your way home from church today, which we hope you don't, but if you do, and you get arrested for being a Christian, would they have enough evidence based through your life living to convict you of being a Christian before a jury? Is there enough outward evidence of that fact? So either we are drawing from the wisdom of God or we are drawing from the wisdom of this world. There is no other degree. There are two kingdoms ultimately in this world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world, the Bible tells us. And the wisdom that comes through him and displayed in the individual will lead to bitter envy and, of course, self-seeking. This is why I'm so concerned with the increased rise of self-adoration in our nation. Today, the idol that America wrestles with is no longer the idol of material possessions. It is the idol of self. In fact, Jesus made it abundantly clear that the beginning of Christianity begins with denying yourself, take up your cross, and following after him. But as long as we look to boast self, the world is telling us that we should boast self. The world is telling us that we should feed and satisfy self continuously. That it's all about you. The trinity that is worshipped by many in this world is me, myself, and I, rather than Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit. Self is truly the idol of today. 
And James is saying to these believers, you will know what wisdom you are living by, by first and foremost, the fruit of it, and that is bitterness, envy, and self-seeking. He says, don't lie to yourself. For, verse 15, this wisdom does not ascend from above, but is earthly, sensual. And notice the third word, demonic. Demonic. The wisdom of the world is first and foremost compiled by the world itself. A consensus of idea. Ideologies are formed and furthered by a consensus of those who hold to them. And that's really what we're seeing in our world today. We're seeing a clash of worldviews in our world like never before. Fifteen years ago, when myself and Jeff and others really tried to encourage individuals to examine their personal worldview, to realize as a Christian, do I hold a biblical worldview or have I allowed the ideas of secularism ism, to dominate? And today we see that the worldviews are colliding so greatly that Christians now more than ever are marginalized because we don't agree with the ideas of the progressive society around us. And this is most likely going to continue to intensify as we go. The software. Our software and their software, they don't agree. They don't communicate. They don't see eye to eye. And as the world continues to change and digress and decay, and as the Lord continues to sanctify and change us and transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, that gulf gets larger. And in the wake of the, the size of that gulf is where animosity occurs. So he calls and describes this worldly wisdom, and he uses three interesting words. The word earthly there, or of this earth, is James contrasting the wisdom that comes from above. It is purely based on a horizontal perspective. The world's wisdom today is absolutely um, contextualized by naturalism, meaning that a supernatural world has no influence or effect upon what happens today. Our scientific pursuits are all from a naturalistic pursuit that the supernatural doesn't exist. And so with the supernatural being abandoned, of course, that would include God. And that's why some scientists or evolutionists more specifically fight vehemently against the idea of God. Because if God exists, then they have to embrace the idea of a supernatural world. So it's horizontal in perspective, worldly measure of truth, meaning it can change with the standards of society. It's material motive. It has temporal priorities, and it serves self. Number one, it is earthly. Number two, it is sensual. 
And the word sensual that we have there in the Greek is derived from the same word that we get the word psyche from. It caters to our fleshly desires. When Jesus told us that Satan is the ruler of this world, we know that he told us that he came to steal, kill, and destroy. But he created a world, Satan did, that is characterized, as John writes, by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These elements stimulate our flesh, tempt us to, and to draw us away from God to satisfy self and the flesh, and it ultimately will destroy us in the end. So we have to understand that the world itself is created in such a way to draw us away from God. So we must be careful. We must understand that. Because when we do, we understand that the world and the wisdom of the world is there to appeal to our fleshly desires, to boast our psyche. And it has one of the teachings that has absolutely decimated our society is the self-esteem movement. We now have the results. We have, of course, are now reaping what we have sown. And the self-esteem movement, the ideas of it, are now cumulated and they're uh, concluding in a society that is governed by entitlement. This is why thoughts matter. So the wisdom of this world is going to placate, it's going to prey upon, it's going to appeal to our fleshly appetites. But then he adds one more, demonic. And it's twofold in its understanding here. Number one, it does originate with a demonic entity. This is part of Satan's plan. It is part of his agenda. It is the way that he is going to destroy the world, the people within it. It is demonic. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul warned his readers very, very clearly and firmly in verse 8. Of chapter 2. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And, verse 10, you are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and powers. Now, if you happen to be reading, for example, from the, new, um, sorry, from the ESV or the NASB, the language is changed there a little bit to be more descriptive of what they believe the Greek is actually saying. When he, The New King James reflects the Greek and says basic principles of the world. In the newer translations, they try to refine that by saying the elemental spirits of the world. 
And those who hold to that, and I am one of them, believe that the philosophies that Paul was discussing that challenged the two greatest aspects of Jesus, his sufficiency and his superiority, any philosophy of the world that does so is robbing you from all that God is and has for you. And he says, don't let it cheat you, don't let it mug you, don't let it rob you giving us the understanding that these philosophical ideas, these ideologies, these, this thinking, this knowledge is going to take you ultimately away from God. Especially undermining the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, who, of course, Paul says is the head of all things. He is the Godhead bodily. And you are what in him? Underline that word, complete in him. Worldly philosophies, worldly ideologies, no matter what they are, will always undermine the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. No matter if it's applied in politics or education, etc. Because we know that true wisdom begins with the fear of God. If we opt out of that, then we begin to embrace the wisdom of this world, which is ever-changing, isn't it? It's constantly moving. It's a moving target. And you may say, well, what's wrong with that? We learn more and we develop further wisdom. That's true. But in the philosophical ideas that operate from a mindset of naturalism, it is always going to be apart from God. For example... In our country today, one of our institutions that has been rocked and moved and and truly has evolved into something it was never meant to be is our justice system in this country. As we moved away from Judeo-Christian values in our justice system and we began to apply other ideas like critical race theory, we began now not to look at the individuals blindly, right? The, the, the statue of justice is blind with the scales in her hands, etc. Meaning every person is equal under the law. Now they want to redefine that. It's not every person equal under the law, but the law is now applied with equity towards the individual. Just this week, we saw that in New York City, a man ran up on stage to stab the Republican candidate for governor. He was arrested immediately by the police and was released without bond. Now, how is that possible? Without bail, excuse me, without bail. How is that possible? How is that possible? Here in the city of Chicago, individuals are being released simply on the basis of their nationality. A justice system that is so degraded to this degree will have a hard time standing. We see individuals that are being arrested for simply self-defense. Things are changing. The ideologies behind the fundamental uh, foundations of our country are changing. And we need to be aware of them. And we need not buy into them. Which leads me to another subject that I want to talk about that I think is important for where we are at concerning 
earthly wisdom and godly wisdom, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Since Wilson was president, Woodrow Wilson, we have shifted in our nation to allow unelected bureaucrats who are quote-unquote experts to make policy decisions for our nation. Now, you think about it initially and you say, well, what's wrong with that? Don't we want expert opinion? Sure we do. But any expert or so-called expert must be evaluated by three E's. Three E's, okay? The first E is experience. What is their experience that warrants them to be an expert? What is their experience that warrants them to be an expert? Number two, just because they're an expert doesn't mean they're going to be ethical in their expert opinion. I think that's an assumption we made. Oh, they're an, ex- you know, they're an expert. You know, they're, and they're, of course, going to be ethical in their application of their expertise. And number three, we have to consider their education. Well, isn't that a given? How can you be an expert without an education? Well, let me ask you a question. Has education changed in our country today? It's no longer about reading, writing, math, science, right? Because God forbid if we don't introduce kindergartners to gender identification, we are doing them an injustice. Let me say once and for all, any individual that wants to approach a kindergarten, first, second, or third grader with these issues is not an educator. That person's a pervert and should be nowhere near our children. And it's time that we as Christians stand up and say enough is enough. We have allowed the world's wisdom to run rampant without challenge. Now, in doing so, it may mean contradicting the quote-unquote experts. Let us remember that when parents across our nation started challenging school boards, were you appalled by the reaction of those school boards? I was. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Who are you, mere parents, to tell us how to educate your children? Well, let me tell you who I am. I'm their, I'm their parent. Amen. It's my job to make sure my child has a proper education. When individuals were stopped reading or, you know, told to stop reading textbooks that were assigned to their children because they were inappropriate to do so openly. They were vulgar. They were pornographic in nature. The school board said, oh, you can't read that here. And then the mother asked, well, then how is it possible that my 14-year-old daughter can read this in high school? This is the wisdom of the world that is being challenged. These are the so-called experts who believe that they are sent to form our society into a utopia that they want to build. It is not a utopia, it's a dystopia, and it is falling fast. God is not hindered by these things. He is not kept up or found helpless in these things. God's perfect plan will unfold itself. But if we're going to consider the elements of wisdom, we must understand that the wisdom of this world is not the same as the wisdom from God. One wrote this. He said, What is the origin of man's wisdom? 
This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. The believer has three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These enemies are suggested by the terms of earthly, sensual, and devilish, and must be resisted and countered with the wisdom that comes from God's word. So let us be prepared. Now, as James then moves on, he says very clearly in verse 16, notice that when this earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom is applied, notice what happens. And tell me if this isn't indicative of our culture today. For where envy and self-seeking exist, notice that confusion and every evil thing are there. Today we live in a world more confused than ever before. Individuals don't even know if they're a boy or a girl. Individuals no longer can have the confidence in principles that, of course, formed our nation, formed our thinking, and now are being abandoned. We have such confusion in the United States of America and is a direct result of applying the wisdom of this world that is sensual, earthly, and demonic, rather than continuing on the foundation of Judeo-Christian principles. But, verse 17, the wisdom that is from above, from God, is first and foremost pure, holy. It parallels the righteous characteristic of God. It reflects Him within it. Every theological understanding. Every concept from soteriology to eschatology are all governed by the character of God. He is the standard and the start and the finish of all things. Within his character, the wisdom from God will be pure, holy, because he is holy. And of course, the Bible says, be holy for I am holy. Then it is peaceable. It will look to bring unity rather than division. It will look to strengthen relationships rather than to sever them. It is gentle, meaning it is willing to listen. It is approachable. It is a wisdom that, is, that manifests itself in the life of the individual that allows them to get along with others. It's willing to yield, meaning it's conciliatory, it's approachable again, open to reason, ready to give in when truth requires it. If an aspect of our wisdom is not defined by God's wisdom, we should be humble about that and then allow ourselves to embrace the wisdom from God in place of the wisdom that we have adopted from the world. It is full of mercy. It is first and foremost looking to extend mercy whenever possible. And of good fruits. Meaning that it will mirror the fruits of the Spirit that are listed for us in Galatians chapter 5. Without partiality, meaning the wisdom of God is not shown to one person apart from another. It is equally applied and it is also genuine. It is without hypocrisy, meaning it's not fake or superficial. 
One of the things that I am becoming more and more aware of is that many Christians like to tell me or talk to me and just simply tell me what they think I want to hear about themselves. They put a facade on through their communication rather than being open and transparent. That's not helpful. It certainly doesn't help them. And it certainly doesn't give me an accurate picture or the ability to speak into their lives properly. These are the characteristics of the wisdom from God. These eight. Pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Verse 18 is not only a concluding verse, but it's a segue into his next thought that we'll look at next week when we talk about where do wars and fights come from. I think about what Chuck Swindoll said when he wrote, he said, James makes his point crystal clear. If you claim to have wisdom like you should, then you should live like the wisdom that you carry. Or, he puts it this way, if you claim to have wisdom like you should, then why do you live like you shouldn't? For Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, should be on the screen behind me. Surely I have taught you the statutes and the judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them. This is your wisdom and your understanding. In the sight of people who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. Your great nation is wise and understanding people. A documentary was recently released by Matt Walsh called What is a Woman? If you haven't watched it, you should. One of the things Matt Walsh does is he goes into other nations around the world and he asks the question, what is a woman? Now, of course, a Supreme Court justice just recently appointed to the Supreme Court could not answer that. She says, I am not a biologist. You know, okay. We thought that was a given, but okay. He said it under oath, that's right. But he went around the world and he asked various cultures around the world, what is a woman? They answered it clearly. Then he asked these same cultures, he said, well, what would you say to individuals who say that they don't know if they're a woman or not? And these men started laughing because they thought it was just complete silliness. Where is the wisdom of this world taking us? Where is the wisdom of this world leading us? And how much of this wisdom of the world have I or you adopted in our lives that is contrary to God's word? James says from the very beginning in James 1, 4 through 5, have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. For if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
Our origins of our wisdom determines the ultimate outcome of our actions. Worldly wisdom will produce worldly results where spiritual wisdom will give spiritual results. I want to close by reading, if I may, from the book of 1 Corinthians, if you'll turn there with me, where Paul exhorts us to avoid worldly wisdom. In chapter 3, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, they're all yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The Bible promises us that it has everything we need for life and godliness. Now, does this mean we shouldn't consult doctors or lawyers or teachers? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that we as Christians once again must adopt critical thinking. We must ask questions. We must compare ideas to the Word of God, which is the incredible wisdom that God has revealed to us. We must think things through for ourselves because ultimately we will be responsible for the outcome of that wisdom playing out through our lives. When someone says they're an expert, let us ask the question, what is their experience? What is their ethics? What is their education? Let us be thinkers. For the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Paul said it this way, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? Our mind. We must be thinkers. That thinking begins and ends with the Word of God. We must saturate ourselves with it. We must dive into it. We need to jump into the Bible without our floaties, giving us fully to it. Because the world is changing rapidly, isn't it? And we see that this wisdom that they have applied and implemented and imposed upon people is taking us in a direction we don't want to go. It's bringing about confusion and every evil thing under the sun. But when it comes to us as believers, I leave you with this verse. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. As one wrote, he said this, Dr. Warren Worsby, What we are is what we live. And what we live is what we sow. What we sow determines what we reap. If we live in God's wisdom, we sow righteousness, peace, and we reap God's blessing. If we live in man's worldly wisdom, 
we sow sin and war and reap confusion and every evil work. So walk in the wisdom of God, you who think they are wise.